Well, you can turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Ecclesiastes, chapter 7. As we continue our studies in that most depressing book, although everyone's saying it's very encouraging. So that's, I guess, explains the point of the book. (laughs) There's enigmas and conundrums. It's depressing, but encouraging at the same time. Uh, So we're going to look at verses 15 through 22 uh, this evening, but I will read to verse 29 to set the context. So Ecclesiastes chapter 7, we'll begin reading at verse 15. I have seen everything in my days of vanity. There is a just man who perishes in his righteousness, and there is a wicked man who prolongs his life in his wickedness. Do not be overly righteous, nor be overly wise. Why should you destroy yourself? Do not be overly wicked, nor be foolish. Why should you die before your time? It is good that you grasp this, and also not remove your hand from the other, for he who fears God will escape them all. Wisdom strengthens the wise more than ten rulers of the city. For there is not a just man on earth who does good and does not sin. Also, do not take to heart everything people say, lest you hear your servant cursing you. For many times also your own heart has known that even you have cursed others. All this I have proved by wisdom. I said I will be wise, but it was far from me. As for that which is far off and exceedingly deep, who can find it out? I applied my heart to know, to search and seek out wisdom and the reason of things, to know the wickedness of folly, even of foolishness and madness. And I find more bitter than death the woman whose heart is, uh, is snares and nets, whose hands are fetters. He who pleases God shall escape from her, but the sin shall be trapped by her. Here's what I found, says the preacher, adding one thing to another to find out the reason which my soul still seeks, but I cannot find. One man among a thousand I have found, but a woman among all these I have not found. Truly this only I have found, that God made man upright, but they have sought out many schemes. Amen. Well, let us pray. Lord our God, we are thankful again, for there is no one righteous, no, not one, save the Lord Jesus Christ. And we're thankful that even with our remaining corruption, you teach us how we ought to live. And we confess, O God, so often when we seek to honor and glorify you, when we seek to kill sin, so often we sin in the process. So often, especially pride rears its ugly head, and we look at ourselves in our so-called goodness, and we pray, O God, that you even forgive us of these things. For this true is uh, this also is vanity. And we're thankful again, O oh God, this magnifies your mercy and grace towards us, how you forgive us, not just for our deeds, but for our words and our thoughts. But we're also thankful, O oh God, you give us much wisdom in how to live in this world. And we're thankful that it starts with that doctrine of sin. So we pray, O oh God, you'd give us a proper understanding tonight. Help us not to be overly righteous or overly wicked. And help us not to be easily offended by what people say. And we confess, oh God, so often these things do happen because we are prideful, because we are arrogant, because we think highly of ourselves. We pray, oh God, that you would humble us. We pray that you would teach us uh, again about our need for you more than our so-called pride, our so-called might, our so-called power. For we know, oh God, anything good we have is truly from you. So we pray that tonight would be encouraging for your saints. Give us strength by your saint, uh, by your spirit, we pray. Then here today, we do not know you. We pray that you would save their souls by your spirit. And we do pray, oh God, in all things, you would be glorified. We pray these things in the name of Christ. Amen. Well, certainly in the Christian walk, especially in our sanctification, the command is to kill sin before it kills us. Well, we must avoid sin. We must not be given into sin. 
The reality is sometimes when we go again, when we try to kill sin, the reality is we sometimes sin while we do that very thing. So often Christians are prone to extremes, so prone to just rejecting certain things that perhaps as we reject one thing, we begin to do something else. We want to stop one sin, but we don't realize we're engaging in another sin. And typically when we try to kill sin and sin then emerges, the one sin that always seems to come about is pride. Pride and arrogance emerges when we think we might have superior righteousness. Look at us. I'm trying to kill this sin. Or perhaps it emerges when we think we have some sort of special wisdom. So often people can be proud about their own humility. So that's a sad cycle that we all live in, even in our Christian walk. That's why it's important to have a sober, humble perspective of this world. And that's what the preacher does for us. He reminds us about the reality of sinfulness and the reality of crookedness in the world that we live in. And that is an enigma. That is a vanity. That is a perplexity that we have to endure in this world. Yet it is another comforting perplexity when we see all that the world is going on in the world. But we also have our own battles with sin. But then we sin as we engage in those very battles with sin. So moderation is important. Moderation is important in light of the crooked work of the Lord God Most High. How, are, how ought we to live in light of the fact that God has made, uh, what, who can make straight what God has made crooked in chapter 7, verse 13? That is an enigma. That is a perplexity. That is a conundrum. And that is, again, the point of the book. There are inconsistencies in this world that we have to wrestle with. The world is not fair. We want everything to be right. We want everything to be just so. We want everything to be hunky-dory and happy all the time. The reality is it is a fallen, sinful world, and sometimes things, unfortunately, do not make sense. And the clear problem that does emerge here in these verses is that problem of pride. And it emerges in two ways. It manifests itself in self-righteousness. When we consider our own self-importance, unfortunately, in that one can be overly righteous. One can be too good, so to speak, but we don't see our very sin. The other problem is one being easily offended. That's another way pride manifests itself. We are so often get so hurt by little things. We have such thin little skins that we get so, you know, stabbed by a little look that someone might give us. It's easy. Uh, it's the reality is we are easily offended because we think we are important and nobody should say anything mean against us. Pride, arrogance that emerges in so many different ways. So really what the preacher is teaching us in these verses is that we shouldn't think so highly of ourselves. We shouldn't think so overly lofty of who we are. We ought to be humble. We ought to recognize what we are. That is sinners, but thankfully redeemed sinners in the Lord Jesus Christ. And I think we can frame this this evening with two commands that we see in these verses. First of all, don't be overly righteous verses 15 through 18. And secondly, don't be easily offended, verses 19 through 22. So don't be overly righteous, verses 15 through 18, and then don't be easily offended, verses 19 through 22. So let's first look at don't be overly righteous in verses 15 through 18. And notice in verse 15, we see the righteous and the wicked both die. And the context really is, is he's considering and pondering chapter 6, 12, for who knows what is good for man in life all the days of his vain life, which he passes like a shadow. 
We talked about how sorrow is good because it ta- causes us to stop and think and ponder. Usually when we're all happy, we forget the, the, the things of God so often. So sorrow is good. The day of uh, uh, mourning is better than the day of feasting. We consider life. We consider death. We consider all those things. We saw how good the end is. That is, even though there's sadness and sorrow and we're prone to sin, there's going to be an end of those very things. And then we did see, lastly, how good God is as well. And remember, that, that section is tough. Consider the work of God, for who can make straight what he has made crooked? God has decreed, God has ordained everything that comes to pass. That does not make him the author of sin. That's hard for us. There's the place of secondary causes, but that doesn't make him the author of sin, yet he is the one who's decreed it to come to pass. So when you see crooked things in this world, remember, it's still in the providence of God. Rather than us freaking out about that, we ought to thank God that he's in control of everything, and we are not. So God has made things that are crooked, and he has an end and a purpose for those very things. Sometimes the hardships, and most of the time, the hardships lead us to trust in him more, lead us to pray to him more, lead us to consider how low we actually are, lead us to, um, they humble us to recognize how much we need him. So there is a place, and it is good. And then in verse 14, in the day of prosperity, be joyful. When God gives good things, rejoice. When there's a day of feasting, rejoice and be happy. But remember, there's also the day of adversity. And surely God has appointed the one as well as the other so that man can find out nothing that will come after him. Basically, we're not in control. We have a plan about what we're going to do tomorrow. We all think we're going to work tomorrow and perhaps... Well, I'm not going to work tomorrow, but you're going to work tomorrow. We're all thinking about what we're going to do tomorrow, right? But it might not come to pass. Who can really know the end from the beginning, the work of God most high? And so in light of all that, in light of the good life, in light of God and the decree and and his providence, he says in verse 15, there are things that are perplexing. And he says, I have seen everything in my days of vanity. Remember, he's, he's going on his quest and he's observing. He's seeing things that are occurring in this world. Now, I think the preacher is Solomon. Remember, Solomon is the wisest and the wealthiest man, perhaps, that ever lived. And I do think Ecclesiastes is after Solomon, went after all those ladies and idols. I think it's after, perhaps, he repented, because at the end, uh, when when he dies in 1 Kings, it says, it talks about, and the wisdom that he did in that closing refrain on his life. I think Ecclesiastes is that wisdom that he wrote down. He's considering his life and looking back. And notice, the one who is the wealthiest, the one who is the wisest, you, the one you think would be the happiest with the things of this world, calls his life vain. I have seen everything in my days of vanity. He recognizes that the things of this world do not last If anyone was going to be happy, if anyone was going to be, you know, cheerful all the time, wouldn't it have been him? He had everything. He even had wisdom. He had wisdom unlike anybody else. And yet his life was still one of great vanity. But thankfully, he bestows helpful wisdom for us. And God uses him to bestow helpful wisdom for us. And this is what he observed. And this is an enigma. There is a just man who perishes in his righteousness, and there is a wicked man who prolongs life in his wickedness. This is, again, where Proverbs and Ecclesiastes help temper one another. Remember, Proverbs is typically, if you do what is good, your days are going to be prolonged. And if you do what is bad, your days are not going to be prolonged. Well, 
There seems to be an opposite thing going on here because we live in a crooked world. We live in a fallen world. We live in a sinful world. And sometimes it is the case, a just man perishes in his righteousness and a wicked man, his life is prolonged in his wickedness. And this is what the psalmist is reflecting on in Psalm 73. He sees that very thing. He recognizes what's going on in the world. He says, as for me, my feet had almost stumbled. My steps had nearly slipped for I was envious of the boastful when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. You'd think it would be better to be wicked, right? They seem to be living a great life. They seem to be having a prolonged life. They seem to be getting away with everything, right? It is an enigma and a vanity and one that is striving after win and a conundrum for us. But the point is, life is not always fair. And the other flip side is as well, just because someone is righteous doesn't mean calamity won't happen to them. Doesn't mean sadness won't happen to them. Doesn't mean difficulty won't happen to them. And we must understand that as God's people. And again, it's tempered with the fact there's going to be an end. There's going to be an end of sorrow. There's going to be an end of pain. And we have hope as God's people. But that doesn't mean that the people of God in this present evil age, in the vain life that we live, that we won't have tribulation and turmoil. This life is hard. This life is difficult. There is pain and sorrow and suffering. There's the threat of our own sins we have to deal with. There's the threat of the devil. There's the threat of the world. All those things. Life is hard. Life is difficult. And this just makes it even more confusing. But Henry says that he saw just men perishing in their righteousness, that the greatest piety would not secure men from the greatest afflictions by the hand of God. Nay, and sometimes did expose men to the greatest injuries from the hands of wicked and unreasonable men. Naboth perished in his righteousness and Abel long before. And there are many other examples in history where we see someone, a righteous man, taken so-called too soon while a wicked man lives a long life. That is vanity. That is a conundrum. That is an enigma and difficult for us to grasp. Now he's going to come around and say in 8, 12, death will come to all. Kind of tempers what he says in 7, but in 8, 12, he says, though a sinner does evil a hundred times and his days are prolonged, yet I surely know that it will be well with those who fear God, who fear before him, but it will not be well with the wicked, nor will he prolong his days, which are as a shadow, because he does not fear before God. So wisdom, fear is still better than wickedness, but the just man may still perish in calamity in this world. And so with that observation, he goes on to give some commandments in light of that in verses 16 through 18. Now, verse 17 is not hard for us. Don't be overly wicked. I mean, that's pretty clear, right? Don't be foolish. Don't be wicked. You know, shun evil. That's important. Verse 16 is a little hard. I admit that. And even the commentators struggle with that. I mean, Ecclesiastes is just a tough book in general. So what is exactly do we see going on here? He says, don't be overly righteous, nor be overly wise. Why should you destroy yourself? Now, perhaps what is going on here, I think the best two ways to take this, one of the two I think would be fine. The first is, with what he's saying here, is don't be overly prideful in your righteousness. Don't be Pharisaic 
in your righteousness. Don't think you're better than everybody in your righteousness and your wisdom. Humility is important. And a little bit of uh, 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 humbling is a good thing. Verse, this squares with verse 19 and verses 19 through 22. Really, there is not a just man on earth who does good and does not sin. Wisdom still important in verse 19. Don't take everything to art. So that could be what is going on here. But another way to take it, I think also could be in view here, is again, don't sin when you try not to sin. Don't be overly righteous. Don't be overly wise. Otherwise, why then would you destroy yourself? Perhaps the point here could be moderation. In verse 18, he says, I think that view squares with verse 18. It is good that you grasp this and also not remove from your hand, uh, uh, your hand from the other. That is grasp both of these things that we're seeing in verses 16 and 17. Don't be overly righteous. And perhaps too, we could square this away as well with what he's been talking about with food and drink. Food and drink in itself is vanity. Food and drink in itself does not last, but there's moderation, right? There is a good gift that God gives, the one who can enjoy the work of his labor. God gives the blessings. God gives the benefits. God also gives the ability to enjoy those very things. There's moderation here for us. There's liberty instead of license. There's liberty instead of legalism. Because we only have so much time in this world to focus on certain things. We ought not to be overly zealous. It ought, ought to be overly zealous for certain things. We, again, we only have so much time. I think a good anecdote for that, I, or that I was thinking of as I was reading this is many years ago when I was at a different church, newly converted, was attending, what's it called, College and Career, Elevate. They always have different names that are interesting. But in any case, I was attending that. And the pastor was talking about the fact that uh, uh, it's good to spend time with God. I agree. We need to spend time with God, okay? We need to read our Bible and pray. Then he talked about a guy who asked his boss to take three hours off of work to spend time with God. And he said that in a positive way. That is, could someone who's pursuing spending time with God, sinning against God by not working hard and doing his job? You see, there's moderation. You see, you must understand that sometimes when we pursue righteousness, we might not see the other sin that we do not see before our faces. Matthew 7 is helpful with this, right? Judge not, you shall not be judged. That one we will be doing on Sunday morning because that one is notoriously taken out of context, right? He's not saying you can never judge anybody. What he's saying is if you have a log protruding out of your eye, don't be looking at the speck in somebody else's eye. That's the point of the text, right? So if we're so focused on the little, minor, tiny, little thing, or we're pursuing that very thing, but don't see the giant sin that's before our eyes, perhaps we're being overly righteous and perhaps overly wise. Another good example of this is Paul in Philippians 3. He talks about zeal, zeal for the against the church, zeal to try and take out this sect, right? What was he doing? murdering people. And let's be honest, many people, many governments, many dictators murder people under the guise of I'm doing it for the world. Under the guise I'm doing it for the benefit of other people. Under the guise of so-called 
righteousness. So perhaps that is what is going on here. I think Henry really nicely kind of gives a good balance between the two. Henry was great. Henry's great on Ecclesiastes. He says, here may be overdoing in well-doing. Self-denial and mortification of the flesh are good. But if we prejudice our health by them and unfit ourselves for the service of God, we are righteous overmuch. Perhaps he has in here the vows of poverty. You don't have to have a vow of poverty, by the way. You can eat food. And it's probably good. You realize that eating food keeps you alive. And one way to not kill yourself and violate the sixth commandment is to eat food so you stay alive. Not saying there aren't times of, you know, fasting. Not saying there aren't times when we, you know, restrict ourselves. But these vows of poverty. Well, you might look overly righteous, but in reality, you're perhaps engaging in righteous overmuch. He goes on to say, to reprove those that offend is good, but to cast the pearl before swine who will turn again and rend us is to be righteous overmuch. Brethren, the wisdom's hard, isn't it? We are called to rebuke. We are called to, you know, speak up, but sometimes we're not supposed to cast our pearls amongst swine. How do I know? Wisdom. And that's, again, hard for us as life unfolds. He goes on to say, Make not thyself overwise. Be not opinionative and conceited of thine own abilities. Set not up for a dictator, nor pretend to give law to and give judgment upon all about thee. Set not up for a critic to find fault with everything that is said and done, nor busy thyself in other men's matters as if thou knewest everything and couldst do anything. Basically, don't be an expert in everything which is hard to do, right? We think we're experts in everything. We think we have, an, we have an opinion on everything. We think everybody needs to know that opinion on everything that we think, right? Don't be overly righteous. Or to put it in First Thessalonian terms, mind your own business. Not saying we don't care for one another. Not saying we don't necessarily call somebody out, but we need God's wisdom and grace to know when to speak up and to know when to shut our mouths. And brethren, most of the time, we should probably do the latter. <laughs> most of the time, we speak up more than we should. And let's be honest, there's only so much time in this world, right? Ecclesiastes chapter three. I mean, if you got a job, I mean, that takes up hopefully at least 40 hours. You cannot take three hours off, okay, for, you know, spending time with God. Do it in the morning, do it after, just find another time to do that very thing. I remember even being at that age, I'm like, why is he saying, like, I'm not trying to toot my own horn. I'm just being overly prideful here. But I remember being 19 going, what do you mean he took three hours off of work? And the guy was talking about it in a positive sort of way. Hard work is good. Hard work is important. But then perhaps you have family that you have to take care of. I mean, I'm sorry. Do you, so family's there, and then perhaps there's church life. Do we really have all the time in the world to busy ourselves with every single thing and everybody's business? That's another problem with Facebook. We think we have time to busy ourselves in everybody's business, right? I guess Facebook's helpful that way because then you don't have to busy yourself in everybody's business because you look on their Facebook page. Anyway, I'm just a conundrum and an enigma and a vanity that we all have to deal with in this world. But I think. Henry is very good with respect to what is going on. We must have wisdom in how we speak to others, wisdom in how we talk to others, 
and make sure we're not prideful in doing it. Do not be overly righteous, nor be overly wise, because unfortunately, we can be overly righteous and overly wise. Why should you destroy yourself? So don't be overly righteous. But then notice he does say, don't be overly wicked. Again, this one's not so hard for us. Don't be overly wicked, don't be, nor be foolish. Notice too, wisdom and foolishness are connected to God's law, right? Knowing what is right and how to execute that knowledge in certain circumstances. That is wisdom. That's why it's hard. That's why we need to know God's law. We need to know the Proverbs that we might then, when something comes and we're like, what are we doing? We might have some sort of background and grid to help us think through what is going on. Wisdom is important to know, again, when to speak up and when to be quiet. So don't be overly wicked, nor be foolish. That's good. That's important. And he says, why should you die before your time? Perhaps the idea is one is being stupid, and they hasten their time before God. Henry again, the calamities of the righteous are preparing them for their future blessedness. And the wicked, while their days are prolonged, are but ripening for ruin. There's a judgment to come which will rectify this seeming irregularity. To the glory of God and the full satisfaction of all his people, we must wait with patience till then. That's a tough passage. Don't be overly righteous and don't be overly wicked. He goes on to say perhaps why. Verse 18, it is good that you grasp this and also not remove your hand from the other. Understand both of these things. Balance, moderation, not prone to extremes. Moderation is important. Holding on to both things, otherwise uh, you'll lose your grip. Also not remove your hand from the other. The reason for he who fears God will escape them all. A, we trust in the providence of God. God might have a purpose for whatever calamity or whatever reason we see with verse 15. There is a just man who perishes. We must trust in him, but God will guide us through whatever we endure, not being overly righteous and not being overly wicked. He who fears God will escape them all. Again, that's the end of the whole matter, isn't it? Fear God and keep his commandments. In a life of perplexity, in a life of conundrums, in a life where people are mean to you, in a life where you're mean to other people, we put our fear and trust in God, right? That's it. We can't control everything in the world. We think we can, we cannot. We cannot really do a whole lot. We didn't choose where we were born. We didn't choose our parents. We didn't choose any of those types of things, right? I mean, we don't really have that much control over our lives. We put our trust and faith in him who is the potentate of time, Ecclesiastes chapter three. But that ought to be comforting too. We put our trust in him, put our trust in his promises, put our trust in his providence and understand that he has a reason for whatever he does, and we will escape the very calamity we might, or us, we will be guided through that very calamity when we fear and trust in him. So brethren, don't be overly righteous <laughs> is the command. Don't be prideful in your righteousness and be ever watchful that when you engage to kill sin, that you're not sinning in some other way. And brethren, that's why Christ is so glorious, isn't he? because he forgives us of the sins we commit while trying to stop sinning.
merciful and good in so many ways, how much we need him for there is no one righteous, no, not one, but we must ask him to help us not be prideful in our righteousness and prideful in our wisdom. And in fact, Galatians chapter six, when it comes to rebuking or correcting someone gives good advice, good wisdom. In Galatians six, verse one, he says, brethren, if a man is overtaken in any trespass, you who are spiritual, restore him such as one in a spirit of gentleness, considering yourself, lest you also be tempted. Considering yourself, lest you also be tempted, not prideful, not arrogance, but with humility. And I think another good application to take away as well is don't be prone to extremes. We're so prone to extremes. We're so prone to reacting. Just just be steady. Henry says, the fear of the Lord is that wisdom which will serve as a clue to extricate us out of the most intricate labyrinths. Honesty is the best policy. Those that truly fear God have but one end to serve and therefore act steadily. Things are happening and around the world. God is in control. We're struggling with certain things, not belittling those struggles. God is in control. God has likewise promised to direct those that fear him and to order their steps, not only in the right way, but out of every dangerous way. Even in Psalm 23, you lead me in the paths of righteousness for your name's sake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will not fear for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. But do you catch that? Paths of righteousness are led through the valley of the shadow of death. But God is with us every step of the way. And thankfully, God tells us in his word and by his providence that there will be crookedness in this world. And sometimes the wicked prosper. Don't be overly righteous. So don't be overly righteous. Let's then look secondly at don't be easily offended, verses 19 through 22. This is so vital and so applicable to every age but our age. Notice he kind of helps temper what he has said in verse 16 with verse 19. Wisdom strengthens the wise more than 10 rulers of the city. We must have wisdom when dealing with sinful people. He reorients us to the point that wisdom is still vital, seeing how the world works according to God's ways seeing how the world works and how it unfolds, how it operates and the right use of God's law. It's vital for this life, more value than mighty men that guard the city. What will give us strength, what will help us, it's God's word. What will give us strength, what will help us, it's God's wisdom. What will give us strength and help us, God who is with us and Christ, who is wisdom itself. So that's important. Wisdom strengthens the wise more than 10 rulers of the city. And notice why. Wisdom understands that there is sin. We live in a time, or at least in the Western world, where everybody thinks everybody is good, right? Everything's going to be a utopia. Everything's going to be wonderful if we just do this, that, or the other type of thing. They don't have a category for sin. They don't have a category for total depravity and total inability. It shows how the doctrine of sin doesn't just teach us how much we need Christ, but it gives us perspective in the world, There is no one righteous, no, not one. It tells us about pride, but also tells us that we should be humble as well. For there is not, verse 20, a just man on earth who does good and does not sin. Wisdom understands this. Wisdom sees this very thing. 
and is patient and gracious with others because of the understanding they're sinners. We're so easily uh, prone to giving ourselves lots of grace, but being strict with other people. It ought to be the opposite, dear brethren. We have been forgiven with a great forgiveness, yet we hold grudges (laughs) towards other people. We hold on to the forgiveness that we ought to give to other people. And the doctrine of sin should humble us in this way. And unfortunately, wisdom can lead to grief. Remember, that's what he sought in Ecclesiastes 1. And what is crooked cannot be made straight. And what is lacking cannot be numbered. Well, he answered that. God has ordained this world for a purpose. And even the crookedness of this world And even though he sought wisdom, grief was found. But there is important benefit and perspective to understanding there's a fallen world. There is not a just man on earth who does good and does not sin. Some very clear examples are the preacher himself and David. The man after God's own heart conspired to kill Uriah, engaged in adultery, did many different sins. But God forgave him. God was merciful to him. We shouldn't be surprised even when the most righteous fall in sin or still have remaining corruption because the sin still remains in this present evil age. So wisdom is important and when we deal with sin. But also, we must have a thick skin, verses 21 and 22. I love that this passage is in the Bible. You can actually say to somebody, do not take everything to heart because it's commanded, right? Verse 21. When you look someone in the face and they're losing their mind, you need to shake them and say, do not take everything to heart. <laughs> Notice verse 21. Do not take to heart everything people say, lest you hear your servant cursing you. Don't be offended. Don't be hurt all the time. Now, we shouldn't hurt other people. I get that. But brethren, if somebody says something mean, sticks and stones, right? Sticks and stones may break my bones, but names will never hurt me. Yeah, sometimes names hurt us because we're snowflakes and we've, you know, gotten a thinner skin. But brethren, we must recognize that we shouldn't take everything to heart. We're so easily prone to doing such things in an age of social media. We have these keyboard warriors. Somebody said something about me on Twitter. Somebody said something about me on Facebook and TikTok and all those sorts of, just let it slide. So what if somebody said something about us? Sometimes it's good to have the idea, usually it's learned, the idea of saying someone says something mean to you. Well, I'm sorry you feel that way. I mean, that's probably an okay response to have sometimes. Yes, some things are good to hear of someone of respect, someone that you appreciate. Yeah, there's times of reproof, but we shouldn't take everything people say to heart. Sometimes even in marriages, spouses are going to say mean things. The, uh, we're going to say mean. I mean, that just happens, right? You know, we shouldn't sulk for an hour, right? And just go mope. Oh, you said this mean. No, no just I'm, oh, I forgive you. That's how it should be, but we're just... So soft, right? I mean, what would happen if there really, you know, you know, if there really was an invasion here? I mean, boy, oh boy. I mean, it'd just be, just, we'd all just, you know, cower. But anyway, we need to build a thick skin, don't we? Rather than having thin skins. And that is learned. People will say something mean, you go home and sulk, and then you say, Lord, 
please help me not to sulk next time. And then somebody says something mean, and you only sulk for half an hour next time, right? And so and then you go away and someone says something mean again, you only sulk for 15 minutes, right? And then you, you someone says something mean, you only sulk for 30 seconds. So, you know, we learn those very things, but don't think so highly of ourselves. It's really the point, right? <laughs> I mean, the reason we get offended is because we think we're great. Nobody should offend us. Don't take everything too heart whatever happened to even in theological circles of a friendly throwdown of just you know just going you know, just boom like tit for tat boom i got this i got this argument you got that getting heated then afterward going for dinner like whatever happened to that very thing like having different it's okay to have differing opinions from other people and not let people be so offended by that very thing Again, keyboard, keyboard warriors are the worst this way. I would rather just call someone up, throw down for an hour, and go out for a coffee. That's how it really should be, right? But the problem is, this is the problem of technology. I was talking to some brothers before the service. I was listening to a couple of political commentators talk about the Zoom parliament that's going on in our parliament right now, right? They're still doing Zoom parliament. You can just Zoom in. You don't have to actually be there. And one of these commentators was saying the fact that what was important about being together was that you could have guys on differing sides, can't stand each other politically, have such you know, opposite views when it comes to how the country should be run. And you know what? There's still people. And when they get together and have lunch and talk about life, they talk about their families. They talk about vacation. They talk about real types of things. There's connection there. Well, there's no connection when it's just everybody on Zoom, right? You see, we have to be able to throw down and not be offended by what people have to say to us. Don't take everything to heart lest you hear your servant cursing you. Now, the language of hearing could have the idea of leaning in close. I'm going to be honest with you. Ignorance is bliss. The internet has taken that away from us. Sometimes it's just best not to know, right? Best not to know what people think positively sometimes, lest we be puffed up, right? What, what do people really think? Sometimes it's best not to know for good or for worse. I just, you know, just even sometimes it's best not to know what your spouse is thinking, right? Like that, that's a good thing too, right? Ignorance is bliss in a lot of ways, lest you hear your servant or your spouse cursing you. And this isn't just a general type of, you know, it's probably calling a curse upon them. So it's harsh and mean. It's not good. It's not a great thing. It's not a kind thing. Lest you hear your servant cursing you. We ought to not be so offended. Again, Henry, wisdom teaches us not to be quick-sighted or quick-scented in apprehending and resenting affronts, but to wink at many of the injuries that are done, uh, done to us and act as if we did not see them. That's good advice, isn't it? That's good horse sense that we see here. And he goes on to say, why? Verse 22. For many times, also your own, own heart has known that you, even you, have cursed others. You know why we're not supposed to be offended when other people say mean things to us? Because we've probably said mean things to others. We've probably cursed others. We've probably said things that are not nice to other people. Again, we're so prone to being gracious to ourselves and being strict with other people. But the reality is the doctrine of sin here teaches us to be humble. We are just as prone to sinning and cursing as the servant who curses 
us. Henry says, if we be truly angry with ourselves, as we ought to be, for backbiting and censuring, we shall be the less angry with others for backbiting and censuring us. It's usually not how it goes. That's why we need God's mercy and grace and power by the Spirit to think less of ourselves and more highly of other people and not to be easily offended. Brethren, don't be easily offended. We shouldn't gripe. We shouldn't complain. We shouldn't grumble. Again, that's why even when we rebuke, even when we correct, it must be done in that Galatians 6 type of way. But I think another New Testament explanation of what we've seen in verses 19 through 22 is in 1 Corinthians 10. I mean, the Corinthian church struggled with pride and arrogance and thinking they were better than everybody because of the gifts. But in any case, verse 12 of 1 Corinthians 10, let him who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. No temptation has overtaken you except such as common to man. Other people struggle with the same sins that you and I do. But God is faithful, who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able, but with the temptation will also make the way of escape that you may be able to bear it. We ought to be gracious with others who struggle with the same sins that you and I do. Bridges says the rule of humility and love will be deal tenderly with others, severely with ourselves. Our master's pattern illustrates the rule and sheds, sheds light on every step of our path. See how important the doctrine of sin is, not just in a theological way, although theology is important, but you see how theology leads to practice. See how the preacher takes sin and makes it very practical for us. See how it gives us perspective in a fallen world and also ought to humble us to show us how unrighteous we really are. Sin is a good doctrine that teaches us something bad about ourselves the one blessed thing that it does, more importantly, is it leads us to seek righteousness in another, doesn't it? What's interesting is Ecclesiastes doesn't have a lot of allusions from the New Testament, even quotes from the New Testament. There's only one place that is ex- probably explicitly quoted um, in the New Testament. That's Romans chapter 3, verse 10. He quotes, Paul quotes Ecclesiastes 7.20. And in Romans 3.10, hopefully you all know the section You may not know the specific verse, but you all know the section. In verse 310, he says, as it is written, there is none righteous, no, not one. That probably comes from an amalgamation of a psalm and Ecclesiastes 720. He goes on to quote many other psalms to show that there is no one righteous, no, not one. There is no one who fears God. There is no one who looks to him. There is no one. Verse 19. Now we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law that every mouth must be stopped. And all the world may become guilty before God. Therefore, by the deeds of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight. For by the law is the knowledge of sin. But now the righteousness of God apart from the law is revealed, being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ to all and on all who believe. There is no difference, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, being justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God set forth as a propitiation by his blood through faith 
to demonstrate his righteousness because in his forbearance, God passed over the sins that were previously committed to demonstrate at the present time his righteousness that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Romans 3.10 teaches us how sinful we really are. There is no one righteous, no, not one. So Paul takes what the preacher says in Ecclesiastes 7 and applies it to the universal reality of sin. Even as he moves in his argument to the purpose and the point of the entire book, we need righteousness from somebody else. We are sinful. We are wicked. Christ is perfect in every way. He was like us in every way, yet without sin. He is the one who is righteous in every way, and we find our mercy and forgiveness in him, even for all the sins that we commit, even when we try to stop sinning. That's how good our Christ is. Well, let us pray. Our gracious God, we pray that you would help us not to be overly righteous and help us not to be easily offended by the things we see and the things we hear about ourselves in this world. So often, oh God, we have thin skins. So often, oh God, we are quickly um, hurt. So often, oh God, we know that uh, uh, we ought not to be, but we know that your word speaks about these realities that shall happen. And we pray, oh God, we know that all these things are rooted in our pride and our arrogance, that we think of ourselves more highly than we ought. Please forgive us for this. Thank you, O God, that we have a righteousness not our own in the Lord Jesus Christ. We pray, O God, that you'd help us to uh, honor and glorify him. Thank you that you sanctify us. Thank you that you preserve us. Thank you that we are justified in your sight. But we do pray in our Christian walk, we would honor and glorify you in all that we do. That whatever conundrum, whatever perplexity, whatever part of the valley of the shadow of death we endure, we would not be prone to sin, O God. That we would die to sin day by day and grow into the image of Christ. We pray, oh God, you'd help us not to sin as we try to stop sinning by your power. And we know, oh God, uh, help us not to be surprised when even the righteous die in their righteousness and the wicked have prolonged lives. For you have spoken these things to us. Thank you, oh God, for perspective. Thank you, oh God, for the doctrine of sin. But more importantly, thank you for the doctrine of salvation and the doctrine of Christ uh, who is our champion, who is our Lord, who is our righteousness, and uh, who died as that perfect sacrifice for us. And in him, we have life everlasting. Thank you for your mercy. Thank you for your grace, O God. And we pray that we would put our faith and trust in you, that we would love the things that you love, adore the things that you adore, but help us, O God, to put to death sin as we do so. Thank you again for your mercy in Christ. Be with us now as we go into the world. Give us strength by your spirit, we pray in the name of Christ. Amen.